Welcome to GW Integrative Medicine, the podcast about disease prevention and health promotion from the Office of Integrative Medicine and Health at the George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Sciences. I'm Dr. Lee Frame, Program Director at the Integrative Medicine Program here at GW. And I'm Janet Rodriguez, the Office's Administrative Director. Today, we're joined by breast cancer surgeon and author Christy Funk, MD, to discuss some of the choices your patients can make to improve their breast health and lower overall cancer risk. Dr. Funk is an expert in minimally invasive diagnostic and treatment methods for all types of breast disease. She received her medical degree from the University of California, Davis School of Medicine. Dr. Funk completed a surgical breast fellowship at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in 2002. She served as a surgeon and director at the Cedars-Sinai Breast Center until 2009. That year, she opened the Pink Lotus Breast Center. Welcome to GW Integrative Medicine, Dr. Funk. Thank you for having me. All right, so I guess we'll just dive right into it. Uh, at, at your center, you fuse the best of conventional medicine with complementary medicine to treat your patients. What attracted you to the integrative medicine approach? What attracted me to integrative medicine was really just the facts, the reality that only 5 to 10% of all breast cancer can be attributed to an inherited genetic mutation like BRCA or CHECK2. In other words, if you look at an, another fact, 87% of all people diagnosed with breast cancer do not have a single first-degree relative with breast cancer. So mm -hmm. if genetics is the be-all, end-all, how come the family histories aren't stronger if you have a diagnosis, and how come only 5 10% tops can be attributed to a gene mutation? And the answer, after I dove into nutritional and lifestyle medicine literature, is quite Clearly and obviously, everything else, diet and nutrition and alcohol and exercise and obesity and hormone replacement and environmental toxicities and emotional stress, all of these things that are, to a greater rather than lesser degree, completely under your control. So it became mm -hmm. this eyes wide open, empowering, exciting avenue for me to travel because I could finally answer patients who say, well, I did the chemo, I did the mastectomy, I did radiation, I'm on tamoxifen, loving it, and I'm just wondering, but now, what else am I supposed to do? And I can promise that the answer from the vast majority of Western medicine practitioners is going to be, oh, honey, you did everything you were supposed to do, you just go live your life, mm -hmm. you're fine, you're cured, you're going to be great. And maybe that's going to be true, probably going to be true for about 75% of them, 25% are going to die from their breast cancer and another large percent are going to recur and enter the battle again, right? So there's more to, honey, you're fine, you did everything right. And so I've developed this integrative approach where yes, we take state-of-the-art Western medicine with cutting-edge surgery, pun intended, um, with <laughs> surgery and conventional therapies when and where indicated and proven to make a strong benefit in survival and lower recurrence rates. We pull in the radiation, the chemotherapy, the targeted agents, the anti-estrogens, etc. However, you combine that seamlessly with herbs, with acupuncture, with Chinese medicine, with stress reduction that's focused through prayer, meditation, tai chi, yoga, with really deep diving into nutrition and what are you eating and when are you eating, when are you not eating, and pulling together a holistic approach that treats the whole person who lives all day long, who walks through a barrage of toxicities from pumping gas to grabbing 
paper receipts at the market to just dust flying around in her home, right? So we walk through this mm-hmm. barrage of environmental things that, again, we can't control the air per se, but we have control in certain situations. You know, is your water filtered? Is your home clean? Because formaldehyde and other toxicities just build up in dust, like dust and vacuum, that helps. And then my main, I really believe that the they're boulders and all the things that I rattled off that can be under our control beyond the genetics and the family history. Of all those things, I feel like there are boulders on the scale of life that tip you toward cancer or away. And then there are pebbles and rocks of various sizes Mm -hmm. that, yeah, they can tip the scales. But if you've got a boulder, any one boulder on your scale, please forget the pebbles. They are not contributing to the overall (laughs) risk. So in my researched opinion, the big boulders are diet and nutrition, alcohol, exercise, and weight. Things like Mm -hmm. the environmental toxicities and taking hormone replacement therapy have proven carcinogenic effects. But if you are perfect weight and eat a whole food plant-based diet and exercise five hours a week, you know, taking hormone replacement therapy for certain people, and then, you know, qualify that, maybe an okay choice for a short amount of time. It's not going to tip any scales toward cancer or away. So... It's a, it's a unified glad, approach. Go, sorry, I want to just go back to something you mentioned because I think it's it's really important to highlight for practitioners. Uh, it, it, you talk about weight being a boulder, and I think maybe that's one that's frequently forgotten, but the majority of cancers actually have a very strong link to obesity, um, and we're seeing an increased risk of cancer in, with the obesity epidemic. Um, and now I think the other boulder you talk about was diet and lifestyle deals with some of those issues. So that sounds to me like maybe one of the major things you're telling us to focus on. Oh, absolutely. So the single most preventable contribution to the causation of breast cancer worldwide is obesity, which is a, you know, growing problem. 68.8% of Americans are overweight or obese. That's phenomenal. That's Mm -hmm. over half, well over half. And it's trickling into our adolescence and childhood. It's a huge problem when it comes to breast cancer because Having a BMI that's over 25 absolutely feeds and fuels estrogen-driven breast cancers. We know that 80% of all breast cancers are fueled by estrogen, right? There's this little receptor for estrogen on the cancer, and when estrogen hits that receptor, it's going to send a signal to the cancer to multiply and divide. Oddly, premenopausal and childhood obesity protects against breast cancer. There's an uncovered probable ovarian connection to some sort of hormonal milieu. However, there's no reason to advocate childhood obesity in the name of breast cancer (laughs) prevention. (laughs) Um, But the point simply is postmenopausal obesity is the link and is the culprit because everywhere you have a fat cell, you have an enzyme called aromatase. And aromatase is taking precursors to estrogen, such as testosterone that's coming from both your ovary, your postmenopausal ovary still spews out testosterone, as does your adrenal gland and androstenedione. These get converted by aromatase, the enzyme in the fat, to estrogen. So yes, postmenopausal, obese or overweight women have higher estrogen levels after menopause compared to their normal weight counterparts. And since fat converts the steroids to estrogen, the big question is, do obese women who are postmenopausal and do not take HRT have increased estrogen levels that increase their risk of breast cancer. And there was a large study that looked at 
how many pounds have been gained by women since the age of 18 through age 60. And for those who are plus or minus eight pounds, they were the null group. So that was no increase in risk. So I'm very proud of them and their skinny jeans. Most of us probably <laughs> have exceeded eight pounds. Um, for those who have gained eight to 14 or 13.9 pounds, their risk relative to normal weight went up 25%. 14 to 29 pounds, 60% increase. And if you've gained more than 29 pounds since your high school weight, you have just doubled the risk of breast cancer. So there's no controversy that obese women have more breast cancer. They have more cancer recurrence by up to 250%. And they have more breast cancer-related death than non-obese women. But the happy great news is that if you lose the weight, you lose the risk. There was a prospective study... Um, almost a decade ago now, but it followed 33,000 women for over 15 years and 2,000 breast cancers developed and the absolute highest rates were in those who had a steady increase in weight over time and the lowest rates were in anyone who just simply lost weight. So there's every reason to focus on your weight no matter what your age and aim for your ideal body weight and stay there forever. That's absolutely one of the biggest preventive interactions you can do to reduce breast cancer. So, Dr. Funk, it sounds like we're talking about um, our favorite culprit, inflammation. Absolutely. So, I think one of the biggest drivers of inflammation that the science points to is what we put inside our bodies. And that makes so much sense. And I don't, it, it kind of breaks my heart, makes me a little angry that went through all of that, everything from biology in college through all the med school, through five years of residency, and then a fellowship in just breast cancer, and I didn't hear a peep about nutrition. I didn't hear a peep that what you chew and swallow might have an effect on the cells. Like, it just, I don't know how it evaded me for so long. I knew tidbits, <laughs> and I used to share them, and people loved them, because I used to lecture a lot um, to the community when I was director of patient education at Cedars for many years, and no one wants to hear about breast cancer unless they're in the throes of it and they have to make some decisions. So I started to pep up my talk with fun facts like, hey, three cups of green tea a day cuts breast cancer in half. Squeeze some lemon in there and you bump the antioxidant content fivefold. So I had these things that literally had people taking out pads of paper and writing down notes, but I didn't ever do a deep dive into the the whole bird's eye view, like what's really deeply happening inside these cells, inside this body every time you chew food and swallow until I wrote my book called Breasts, the Owner's Manual, and uh, the paperback is coming out October 1st, 2019. That is, um, that it was a national bestseller when it came out in hardback, and that is the reason why I'm, why I'm so smart today, because I, I don't know what I was talking about before I wrote that book. Honestly, I, I knew a few things, but the nutrition, I did not. So here's what happened to me. I, well, they don't teach you that in medical school. They don't, and then they don't foster any kind of environment or incentive to learn it later, mm -hmm. right? So I did, I had my little right. pearls that I picked up on a journal here and there. But think about it, like, first of all, my job is to detect and treat breast cancer. So just from a perspective of what my patients are expecting when they walk in the door, it isn't a lecture about the dangers of animal protein. It's, do I have a lump in my breast or not? And what is it, right? So that's what they're expecting from me. So I have to deliver on that. And then if I had any extra pearls, they'd be given for free because there's no real reimbursement in that. And then I work 12 plus hours a day. I come home to triplet sons and I'm not going to crack open the journal of clinical nutrition because if there's something <laughs> important in there, I would have been told about it first of all. And second of all, again, then I go back to the office and dispense this information for free. So it doesn't, the, the medical community, the insurance reimbursement landscape does not set up 
to continue your education in an avenue that you never received through med school. So to that extent, it's really not the doctor's fault. If if it were so important to talk about nutrition, we think after you know 11 plus years solely focused on medicine, I would have heard a thing or two about it. And then also, as we know, and I don't want to dive to digress, but there are trillions and trillions of dollars at stake for big beef, big chicken, big dairy, big egg, big sugar, big processed food companies, right? So they have a vested and lobbying interest in keeping us uninformed or just adequately confused. Confused enough that, huh, I heard Dr. Funk talk, but then the very next hour, I heard this really smart guy talk about being keto or paleo or Atkins or South Beach, right? And so you just throw up your hands and say, forget it. Give me the burger. Um, I'm so glad you mentioned that. We actually are going to be having PK Newby come to to GW to speak about nutrition confusion for exactly that reason. Um, Because we are so confused and there's so many mixed messages and so many quote unquote nutritionists out there who know everything or have such strong opinions about things but aren't backed by science. I do feel like when I preach my new messaging about be eating a whole food plant-based diet, which I'll, I'll start talking about in a second, but um, the, the response, those who are resisting the message, despite the fact that I have so much science behind what I'm saying, and if you want to show me however you're eating has documented angiographic proof of reversing coronary artery disease, then... I'll pay attention to your diet. But for right now, mm-hmm. I know the antidote to the number one killer of yourself and everybody you love on the entire planet, and that is to eat plants. So I'm open to hearing the science from the other sides. And it is true that certain diets will induce weight loss, and everybody knows if you lose weight, you're going to start feeling better. You're going to start moving more. Your mm-hmm. Some of your disease risk will go down. But those particular diets that are very low in carbohydrates and high in fat, saturated fat and high in protein, are not sustainable unless you never want to poop again. Or <laughs> and, and then they lead to rebound reversal. Like it's worse than it was before. Um, and it's just, anyway, it's not a really sustainable. But the, but the thing that I find that creates the resistance is like, hey, without saying it, I, they're thinking and feeling you. I have built my entire fill-in-the-blank, my entire career, my entire personal way of eating and the way I ate, t- taught my children to eat, and now they're flown and grown. And I, I've, I've put this whole belief system in place on a foundation of this is what nutrition looks like. And you can't rock that because then everything comes crumbling down. And I don't want to be wrong and I don't want to change mm. And so if you're just... Well, and it's very cultural too. Oh, absolutely. It, it's You're hitting certain ethnic groups right at the heart of how they eat. You're hitting grandma's favorite apple pie recipe with extra butter. It's mm-hmm. It hits home and home and food for good reasons um, has become, you know, it's in- intimately associated with hopefully, with love and friendship and laughter and holidays and celebrations, right? And, and so you're rocking memories now because you, you, you're taking the food away. But that's just a paradigm that needs to shift. Food and Thanksgiving in my house, I mean, we, I was queen of 
making the best turkey ever. And I, at every party, was in charge of the cheese platter because, man, I had that thing gourmet down, right? So <laughs> it's changed now. We have an awesome rockin' Thanksgiving, and there's still tons of love and laughter and friendship and family and friends around the table. And, and the, the real heart of it all hasn't changed a bit. So let me say then, when I did my said deep dive into nutritional science, simply to prove in my book that what I was saying was right. Every single fact I write in that book has a reference. There are 80 pages of over 1,500 references. I could not afford to be wrong because I felt a responsibility to be scientifically accurate. And I needed to have armor on for the haters that, you know, inevitably come. So I did my deep dive. And They're definitely out there. <laughs> I know, bring it on. Okay, so <laughs> I just couldn't believe what I was reading. And what I started to understand is that Without fail, the cellular response inside your body to consuming any animal protein, any animal fat, is to skyrocket estrogen levels, growth factors, and in particular IGF-1, insulin-like growth factor. It created angiogenesis, right, new blood vessel formation, which is an absolute requirement for any cancer cell to get its nutrients to divide and multiply into a wad, and then boom, there's its exit strategy. They just metastasize straight through those new vessels that they brought to themselves. And it impairs the immune system and creates all these free radicals, which, bingo, back to what you were asking, is all the inflammation. So in this world of oxidative stress, all of the oxidants, which come from the reaction to animal protein and animal fat, have to be quelled. That madness runs around day after day after week after year and a few, four or five decades into life of every meal whoosh, high, highlighting all of this immune system dysfunction and inflammation and free radical formation, whatever that inflammatory damage hits the most becomes your killer. So if it's your arteries, hello, heart disease and stroke. If it's your brain, Alzheimer's and dementia. If it's your pancreas, type 2 diabetes. And if it's your breast, hello, breast cancer. So what quells oxidative stress but antioxidants? right? And where do they come from? There's only one place on planet Earth I know you guys well know, and that is plants. Plants, fruits, vegetables, 100% whole grains, legumes, beans, peas, nuts, lentils. And what there's one study I love that, um, there's a couple studies I love to tell my patients about because their eyes widen and pop out of their head and fall on the floor. It is revelatory to them that it's not too late, the cancer already came, doc. I'm 68, doc. Look how fat I am. No, 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 no. Listen to this for a second. So I'm going to tell you my two favorite studies that radically will transform, I hope, at least one listener, and then our job is done for the day. Um, if we take, not we, somebody, researchers took 80 subjects and they fed them a standard American diet for breakfast and lunch, and they measured oxidized LDL cholesterol hourly as a measure of oxidative stress. Okay, so here comes breakfast. It's pancakes and bacon, steak and eggs, and then they measured levels. Up, 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 and lunch, hamburger and fries. Up, 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 dinner. So these people who eat a sad standard American diet every day go to bed with fewer antioxidants than when they woke up. But same people, next day, same meal, one change. Pancakes and bacon, one cup of strawberries. LDL, up, up, down, down, baseline. Hamburger and fries, one cup of strawberries. Up, up, down, <laughs> down, baseline. So the power 
The phytonutrient, the phytochemical power in a cup of strawberries has the ability to completely nullify the oxidative stress caused by a high fat animal protein meal in a matter of hours. What would have happened if that meal had been steel cut oats and a bunch of berries to begin with? Then the oxidative and stress. And some nuts. And, and some nuts. Thank you. Yes, let's sprinkle some <laughs> seasoned nuts on there too. Um, healthy fat. The fat, the healthy fats in nuts, I, I, I just learned this, so it's not in my book, free tidbit, um, increases the phytonutrient absorption tenfold from leafy greens and other vegetables. So, so I now, without fail, on my daily salad, always make sure I've got some nuts and seeds on top to enhance the absorption. So if that meal had been so plant-based to begin with, the oxidative stress battle would have been over in a matter of, I don't know, 30 minutes or more. And then, and then what are all those phytonutrients going to do, right? Because all we do is chew and swallow. But what we've released inside our bloodstream is a veritable arsenal of chemical weapons that come from plants that go coursing through your veins, saturating every organ and creating a cell microenvironment that is for that cell's repair and regeneration and benefit instead of being full of inflammatory markers that tear that cell down, make it DNA damaged and deranged and eventually cancerous or atherosclerotic plaque or what have you. Now, Dr. Funk, um, you've teamed up with the Physicians Committee to uh, help women reduce the risk of breast cancer. Can you tell us about the Let's Beat Breast Cancer campaign? I would love to. So yes, I teamed up with the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine and We've created a campaign that launches October 1st, 2019, called Let's, Let's Beat Breast Cancer, a four-pronged approach. So it's a clever fork that has four prongs on it. And on mm -hmm. each prong are steps that women and men can take now, right now, today, to make breast cancer less likely to start in the first place or less likely to come back if it's already been diagnosed. And the four prongs include choosing plant-based foods, Number two, exercising regularly. Number three, limiting alcohol. And number four, maintaining a healthy weight. So we've come together as physicians, dietitians, breast cancer thrivers, and celebrities to spread this message that people have so much more control over this disease than they have probably been led to think. So the website is pcrm.org forward slash let's beat breast cancer. And there you'll learn tons more about what we're doing in our messaging. Great. Thank you for that. Um, so one of the things that we frequently hear as providers is that lifestyle changes aren't easy. What suggestions do you make to your patients for them to make these changes for the four-pronged approach? Small goals and a support group. So mm -hmm. when you choose plant-based foods, I am an all or none, like, you know, triple A kind of person. So literally one day mm -hmm. I'd had enough in writing my chapter. My kids were at school and they came home from school. I ran downstairs, boys, come over. They were eight at the time, all three of them. They run over to the fridge. I fling open the doors and declare, boys, we're going vegan. And they were like, <laughs> yeah, what is vegan? So <laughs> we emptied out the fridge, four bags filled to the brim with animal products and dairy and brought them to my 88 year old parents and said, here, it's too late for you. Um, not, not true. I actually don't think it's ever too late, but they would be so mad if I threw away all that food. So I did give it to them. Um, so I was just in a moment done and hundred percent whole food plant-based, but other people, I would say, you know what? That's okay. If what, if what you're eating right now lands you like a C minus on the grading score of 
how well you're eating. There are 21 meals a week, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Let's just start with seven, one a day. Let's change one a day to be totally plant-based so you can start, ease yourself into learning how to manipulate your existing recipes to be more or completely plant-based. And then understand that your palate might take a minute or two to change. You're used to some pretty addictive, awesome, delicious, gooey, cheesy stuff and salt, et cetera. So it might take a minute for you to actually awaken your taste buds to the fact that this new food is delicious and you can't wait to have your next meal. So start small, maybe just choose a meal a day to be totally plant-based and slowly manipulate other meals to be more plant-based. And when I say exercise regularly, that looks so different for each person out there, right? Running up a flight of stairs may be a no-go for some person. Like, I'm not running. I can't run a flight of stairs. What? <laughs> um, so you need to choose your goals, and they may be small in time increments. So if five minutes strolling, even with a cup of coffee, through the neighborhood with a buddy is going to exhaust you and you need to take a break for a half hour afterwards, good for you. Take your break, shower off, and then do it again tomorrow and try to go 30 seconds longer, right? So start small with your goals. In terms of exercise, here are the goals that are proven to maximally um, reduce illness in your life. So they're lofty, but they are the actual targets. So I'm not going to patronize you and say something less than what's proven. It's five hours a week for those who are going to exercise being able to chit-chat with a girlfriend, and you get to cut it in half, two and a half hours a week, if you're going to be super sweaty and can barely, barely carry on a conversation. When it comes to limiting alcohol, some people are like, I have a glass of champagne on New Year's Eve. So that person has already basically eliminated alcohol, and they don't need to worry about focusing on alcohol. But obviously, we have a culture and it's pretty ubiquitous across the world where it, you know, there's always a reason for some people to drink. It's my best friend's birthday. I'm happy today. or I'm sad today. or I'm stressed today. Or, but we use alcohol in celebrations and often as a, as a crutch to help unwind. It's becoming increasingly common in uh, women in particular uh, to drink alcohol. So the American Cancer Society would say that one drink a day is a limit for women. I would Caution even against that amount. I think some mounting literature is um, debunking the idea that alcohol, a drink a day is heart healthy. So that was sort of the logic was that it, it helps by reducing LDL cholesterol and helps protect against heart disease a drink a day. And it's not that breast cancer adverse. So what is a drink? It's five ounces of wine, it's 12 ounces of beer, is 1.5 ounces of hard liquor. So whatever your poison is, a drink a day will increase breast cancer by 10% over not drinking two drinks a day, 30%, three drinks a day, 40%, and onward from there. So it's not that big of a bump. When I say 10%, statistics can really mess with your appreciation for what the absolute risk is to you. So let's just say you're 52 years old. The risk of getting breast cancer between 50 and 60 is one in 42 women. So a 10% bump would be 1.1 in 42 risk for that decade of life. So the 10% bump can be offset by some of the health benefits, in particular the resveratrol and anti-aromatase activity of red wine, four to eight ounces, um, has been shown in several studies to actually reduce breast cancer mortality So and all-cause mortality. So, so what I'm hearing you say is if you're going to have a drink, it should be red wine. It should be red wine and it should be a judicious amount between four and eight ounces and... And another new study showed that every other day drinking one or two glasses was more beneficial than daily drinking. But then again, anybody listening who isn't a drinker could just kind of shrug and be like, 
or not drink. And I'm there with you too. Don't drink. If it's not a something that's part of your life, I wouldn't make it part of your life. That, that makes perfect sense. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Funk. Thank you for having me. This is the GW Integrative Medicine Podcast from the GW Office of Integrative Medicine and Health. I'm Dr. Lee Frame. And I'm Janet Rodriguez. Thanks, Thanks for, for listening. listening.